Hey everyone, I have an exciting announcement. We recently secured a gift of $15,000 to match all donations given by the end of the year. As a fully self-funded project of the Commonwealth Club, we rely on supporters like you to bring this podcast to you every week. To support more climate conversations like this one, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to climateone.org donate. Your gift of any amount will be doubled. Thank you for listening and for your support. Now for this week's pod. What makes climate change such a hard sell for storytellers? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Media coverage of climate change has increased dramatically since Donald Trump took office, and so have expectations for reporters on the climate beat. An environmentalist tweeted that, uh, oh, Axios reporter throws in the towel on climate change. And I thought, well, it's not my job to hold the towel, let alone throw it anywhere. Amy Harder reports from Washington, D.C. on energy and climate change for Axios and writes a weekly column called Harder Line. She previously covered climate and energy at The Wall Street Journal and believes her job is to report on carbon pollution as it is, not how advocates want it to be. People say it's just Wall Street follows the money and this is just where the money's going. Patrick Temple West covers global energy from New York for the Financial Times and contributes to a column called Moral Money. As climate disruption hits the economy in more ways, it is increasingly being covered as a business story. With apologies to mainstream media, there are two tools that are holding companies accountable in ways that didn't exist to the same degree 10 years ago, social media and a company's employees. Aaron Kramer is CEO of BSR, a nonprofit formerly known as Business for Social Responsibility that works with companies to develop sustainable business strategies. In the second part of today's show, we'll listen to a conversation with Aaron Kramer, Amy Harder, and Patrick Temple West about media coverage of energy and climate recorded recently at BSR's new Climate for Business conference in San Jose, California. First, why climate stories have been such a hard sell in broadcast media. MSNBC host Chris Hayes tweeted in 2018 that every time he has covered climate, it has been a, quote, palpable ratings killer. Other prominent broadcasters also have reservations. It feels like any minute that I'm not talking about climate change, it's like I'm turning my back on the most important thing that is happening to all of us. Ira Glass, host of This American Life, shared his climate angst on the Elephant podcast in 2015. Honestly, like the brute fact of how doomed we are. It's hard to keep repeating that and have it have any feeling. Like, I don't need the exact details on the level of screwedness. Like, I got it. The topic comes up, you feel this spike of anxiety, and then engaging it is too challenging. Helen Horn feels his pain. For 12 years, she was executive producer of Radiolab, where she steered that hugely popular show that helped launch the podcast and storytelling boom. Ellen's journey as a storyteller began with a mission statement she wrote for herself at the age of 24. Like many young people, I was trying to figure out how to have a fulfilling life and what to do with myself. And I had a great aunt who passed away. I'm one of seven children, and she 
passed away and had and my parents had decided to split the money that she left among the seven of us. So I think I must have inherited like $2,000. And at that point in my life, that was like quit your job money. Like it was so much <laughs> money. I didn't know what to do with myself. So I quit my job. At that point, I was working for the American Arbitration Association and I was officiating union elections. And I was thinking about going to law school, but I wasn't sure. And so I took some frequent flyer miles or a, a, I guess it was a, a flight coupon from a work trip where I'd been pumped from a flight. And I stayed at a friend's parents' timeshare in Hawaii. And I, I got myself this week's vacation in Hawaii. And I went to the Brigham Young University Library Career Counseling Center I wasn't a student, but they, they they opened the doors and they welcomed me in and I took I got out all these career books and I took all these tests and I wrote this this in at the end of the week I wrote this mission statement and the mission statement is that I want to get people excited about good ideas. And I think largely that's still my mission statement. I think it speaks to some of just my personality characteristics and the drives that motivate me so that with that mission statement, I want to get people excited about great ideas. I told everybody I knew that that was my mission statement because, of course, as you remember, I just quit my job. And so I was looking for a job and it took a couple of months. But the job that I eventually took was with a small startup nonprofit called the Coral Reef Alliance. And the Coral Reef Alliance had a, what I thought was a really good idea to get the people who use the resource of coral reefs and appreciate it most, scuba divers and underwater photographers, uh, recreational fishermen, to participate in local conservation efforts. And so with that, I joined the Coral Reef Alliance and I started learning how to do membership education and uh, grow a membership, do fundraising, grant writing. Uh, I started going to scuba diving shows and, and doing these membership drives to get people to join the organization. And of course, they taught me how to scuba dive. I got to go travel around the world and go scuba diving with rich people. It was like <laughs> it was an amazing job for a 24-year-old. Mind-blowing, right? And at some point, I became aware of the threats facing coral reefs and that global warming was the greatest threat facing coral reef and that the mission of the organization to locally protect coral reefs wasn't going to do anything. Mm -hmm. And and at that point, I, I guess I just felt like a used car salesman. I would sit down with people to ask for their $20 annual membership or to ask for their $50,000 gift to support some local conservation effort. And I knew in my heart that it wasn't going to do anything. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I started trying to figure out how else I could get people excited about great ideas. And so you left that and you, then you were at Radiolab for 12 years or so as executive producer. Did you ever pitch a climate story at Radiolab? <laughs> Constantly. So the interest in climate never went away. We talked about it frequently. And I could never figure out how to do a climate story that would meet Radiolab's 
high narrative bar. Mm. At Radiolab, we wanted stories to be surprising in lots of different ways. We wanted them to be surprising in terms of surprising characters. We wanted the plot to be surprising. We wanted the information that you take away from the story to be surprising. You want the story to have twists and turns. You know, there, there should be all these um, moments in the story where, where your understanding of the idea of the story shifts mm -hmm. and you find yourself in some whole new, different, other kind of story. With all the climate stories that I would try and bring into the editorial room, the characters were, you know, they were kind of predictable. Mm -hmm. They were the hardworking scientist, the, you know, the ice core scientist who was uh, heartbroken or, you know, the spruce and pine researcher who was doing this one particular thing. There there. There was no, the story didn't ever change or evolve or get somewhere that you just didn't, didn't see this next part coming. Mm -hmm. We invited in, uh, at one point, some BuzzFeed reporters that kind of got close, who started talking to us about the way uh, that investors and wine industry folks are thinking about climate change. But then it was the kind of story where... Um, turns out it's just not that surprising. Like you think about it for a second and you're like, oh, I see. They're just planning for when things get warmer. Mm -hmm. That's not that surprising. Grapes are moving north. Yeah. So do you feel like you failed at Radiolab or is it a failure of the format? I mean, I think the media is failing in general to find a way for us. I mean, humanity is failing to find a way for us to talk about climate change that we can grapple with it and surprise ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, the end. The end is always. Yeah, we're doomed. We're screwed. Humanity's screwed. It's like, okay, let's. We know how this ends badly for us. Let's not go there or think about it. Right. The topic comes up. You feel this spike of anxiety, and then you just look away, or you, you know, engaging it is is too challenging. Do you think the stories need to have some candy coating or entertainment to get people to swallow them? Well, I think that's a good technique that we used a lot at Radiolab. I'm not sure what the candy coating is. I mean, I think that's something I th I thought about a lot. How would you, what would you wrap around a climate change story to make it something that compels you to keep listening and be interested and still has a, you know, a strong takeaway in it? I guess as, as the closest that I got after I left Radiolab, I went to go work for Audible for a few years, and I partnered up with an author, uh, Andy Beers, who until recently was at Citizens Climate Lobby, and he had written a book called Twain's Feast. Hmm. So Mark Twain, humorist, mm -hmm. you know, the American icon. At one point, he wrote, while he was traveling in Europe, he wrote a menu of his favorite foods. And you know, like Twain, it's totally over the top and hilarious. It's a, a list of this small little affair that he would like, you know, this meal waiting for him when he returns to America, uh, waiting at, at the dock when his boat pulls in. And it's 100 items long. It's a huge <laughs> list. And Andy had had done all this research. At first, when he saw the list, he thought, oh, maybe this is a cookbook. Um, you know, I could do recipes and research the history of all of these 
you know, a lot of them were Southern foods or sort of interesting, interesting items. Um, but as he looked deeper into the list, he realized that there was a thread running through it of all of these wild foods uh, from all of Twain's travels across America, many of which are you can't eat anymore. And so this there's this kind of through line around conservation and land use and the way America is changing at, at some point during the project. We, we ended up doing an audio adaptation for it and partnering up with Nick Offerman to host it. And with Nick, we decided to throw a dinner party and invite some of his friends and actually cook some of these foods <laughs> like raccoon, raccoons on the list. So it's a really delightful project. And there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of laughter. There's great immersive audio. You, you know, it's sort of a travel log and a food book. But really at the heart of it, it has a lot to say about how we're using and appreciating the physical world and natural world around us. Mm -hmm. Slipped in there. Well, obviously, Bill Nye, John Oliver have done some really good work recently trying to making carbon pricing funny and getting it, serving it up with some sugar and laughter. There was a moment when your daughter was seven years old and you had a gutting conversation with her. Tell me that moment. Yeah, very clear memory of a summer day walking home with my daughter at seven, she started, she has able to process some of the things that she's hearing in the news, and she had lots of questions. And this was after uh, Trump had made some moves to um, change the emissions standards mm -hmm. out of the automotive industry. And I, I'm sure she heard my husband and I talking about how upsetting this was and and what this meant. And so she was asking questions about it and I was trying to explain what was going on and doing it in that kind of like, I, I like, I want her to be interested in the world. I want her to understand. I don't, I don't want to, I'm, I'm a pro-transparency parent. I, I always want to be telling her the truth. So we're having this conversation and she says something like, I hope I die before the air gets too hot to breathe. Oh. And I just felt gutted. Like, what am I what am I doing with my life that I'm not spending every minute trying to change the future that she's gonna experience? And then what happened after that? <laughs> I think I tried to say something reassuring. Mm -hmm. I mean it was mm -hmm. like I'm not sure I lived up to my own standard of being honest. And have you talked about climate since? We have talked about climate since. Um, we talk about consumption habits. We talk about uh, climate and efficiency. Um, we're doing more composting and gardening together. So age-appropriate things. That's yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. Do you bring up climate with your colleagues or friends? Yeah. No, I would say it's frequently a topic. I mean, some of my closest friends are really actively involved in climate activism and uh, research and still in marine conservation. Um, and, you know, I just did this, I did a, a little piece for, for the Pulse mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. aquaculture. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who's, who started an investment uh, fund for aquaculture um, 
some part of that is trying to do aquaculture smarter and really apply technology in a wiser way, hopefully for big impacts for climate, health, and poverty, which I think is incredibly strategic. And does it come up in a nihilistic way or like, oh, let's touch that but not stay there too long kind of way? Because it's hard to hold for very long. I find that, you know, yeah, there's like a 30 second conversation, there's a two minute conversation, and most of them don't go beyond two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's probably right. I would say it comes up as like these little flashpoints of anxiety um, every once in a while in some interesting, you know, have have you heard about X? I'm interested in some little you know, I gosh, I haven't had one of these conversations in a in a long time. But like, I, I have a cousin who started a a solar farm uh, project, so he he develops large scale solar power projects, and sometimes he's got really interesting things to say about advances there. So every once in a while, we can have something that goes beyond just the sheer anxiety, mm -hmm. hand wringing. Well, thanks for sharing your story and your insights from Late Radio Lab and, and to your family, Eleanor. I appreciate it. I appreciate the chance to talk about it. It's given me a lot to think about. Ice Age heat wave can't complain if the world's at large. Why should I remain? Longtime Radio Lab executive producer Ellen Horn on the difficulty of telling climate stories that surprise us. You're listening to Climate One. Coming up, covering the business of climate in all its gory detail. Cheerleading is not journalism, and I think we actually do ourselves a disservice if we make it seem far easier than it is, if we suggest that everything is about win-win solutions, because the world is a lot messier than that. That's up next, when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We turn now to a conversation about current media coverage recorded at BSR's new Climate for Business conference in San Jose, California. My guests were Aaron Kramer, CEO of BSR, Patrick Temple West, a global energy reporter for the Financial Times, and Amy Harder, who writes for Axios on the transition of fossil fuel companies and the growing global demand for energy. We begin with Amy describing how she balances the facts of climate change with the urgency of what those facts are saying. One of the interesting things about my job is that there's a lot of people out there on Twitter, but also in the real world as well, who think that it's my job as a journalist to say where we should be going to address climate change, uh, as opposed to where we actually are going in this world. And, and that's one of the key issues that are in the debate around the International Energy Agency uh, forecasts for global energy demand and emissions. And, and so I often, you know, I, I did a column earlier this year and the headline was something like, uh, it's getting too hard and too div uh, divisive to solve climate change. And I just laid out some really obvious but very stark facts like the world has never reduced greenhouse gas emissions except for uh, briefly during economic crises and I don't think that's a way any of us want to actually reduce emissions and I had a whole other uh, series of facts in there as well uh, just laying out uh, in very big picture terms how this is getting very very difficult and somebody uh, an environmentalist tweeted that uh, oh Axios reporter throws in the towel on climate change 
And I thought, well, it's not my job to hold the towel, let alone throw it anywhere. And so I present these facts, which include the fact that we are not even anywhere near on, on the target to address climate change, even if it doesn't get as many retweets or likes. Um, and I'm okay with that, because ultimately what I think journalism is here for is to present those facts, even if they may not fit with a certain agenda. Right, and we'll get into that a little later about the psychology. I think there's a lot of sort of wishful thinking or what some people would call motivated cognition. People sort of believe things that they want to be true. Uh, Aaron Kramer, I think that happens a fair amount in the sustainability press. There's a lot of people sort of writing things as they want it to be rather than it is. Is that fair? Well, I think it is fair. I think there's uh, cheerleading is not journalism. And um, it's important to state a point of view. It's important, I think, to say this is where we need to go. But I think we, as a community, actually working on sustainable business, actually do ourselves a disservice if we make it seem far easier than it is, if we suggest that everything is about win-win solutions, because the world is a lot messier than that. So I think having the point of view about the direction of travel is crucial. That's why we're here. That's what we get up to do every day. But uh, also being realistic about how far we've come um, is essential to maintaining credibility. And if you're not credible, you don't motivate. So uh, I think being grounded in, in the reality of where we are is, is very important. But I think underneath the climate conversation, there's a lot of anxiety and pain, and people just kind of want to believe that we're making progress. Even if we're not making progress, I just want to believe that today because, I've, because I want to think that my, my work is having an impact, right? A lot of wishful thinking underneath there. Patrick Temple-West, uh, most economists would say that pollution is a classic market failure problem because we few people or institutions pay the full price of the pollution that they, they put into the air or the, or, the, or the water. It's a market failure. So writing for uh, the F Financial Times, which is the global paper for global capitalists, how do you think about this story as a, as a market failure story? Well, we're covering climate change, ESG, and sustainability as a business sector. I have colleagues who cover banking, who cover energy. We want to be covering climate change as a business who's up, who's down, who's making money, who's losing money. And there are a lot of different ways into the climate change story. You can go to Greenland and report about how the ice sheets are melting faster than they used to be, as one of my colleagues from London did. Or you can cover things like the task force for climate-related disclosures. We've written stories about that. We've also covered proxy advisors and some of the pending SEC regulations for those as they are recommending shareholder votes uh, for companies and climate-related disclosures. So there are different ways into this story, and that's how we've been thinking about it at the FT. Is, it, is that story a risk story or an opportunity Both. story? Both. Both. I mean, something that we want to be talking to is investors who say, look, climate change is coming. Where are the opportunities for us? Where can we talk to meteorologists, climate scientists, and say, you know, Columbia Sportswear, if, if it's not too cold out, then they won't be selling as many coats. Well, who are the investors who are saying, no, we believe this winter might actually be colder than normal and we're going to be buying Columbia Sportswear? It's examples like that. Amy Harder, I'd like to get you on sort of the risk opportunity balance. I think most people think of climate as a risk because it's been in a very doom and gloom, dark frame. So how do you think about the opportunity risk balance? 
I think this is something that I uh, have been covering a lot this year. One of my first uh, columns um, in this year was uh, covering the, the United Nations Climate Conference, which is held at the end of each year. And I remember a, a negotiator for Saudi Arabia said the following, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing. He, he was saying, you know, if you think about it, we in Saudi Arabia are actually the most at risk uh, due to climate change. Uh, and I think that kind of stunned some people, um, you know, from low-lying nations that won't exist in 50 years to hear that from a country like Saudi Arabia. But if you listen to what he said, he actually made some sense in that uh, Saudi Arabia is a desert nation, uh, so will be exacerbated with drought. And in addition, action on climate change will erode the economic base of Saudi Arabia, which is the whole purpose of their IPO. Now, putting morality aside, which, and, and, and the, the blame that people want to place on climate change, it's true that Saudi Arabia will be on the losing end of both climate change itself and the actions to address climate change. And so it's a risk-risk for Saudi Arabia. Now, to be clear, the impacts of climate change are on net very negative, but there will be some short-term positive. And if that short-term positive happens in a place like Russia, uh, where they get greater um, agriculture yields for a certain number of decades, now it won't be forever, but it will be for a certain amount of time, that's going to be an opportunity. And so there's this idea that uh, because we all share one planet, we all need to be in it together, I think is a little bit naive. Um, I actually think, again, putting on my sort of uh, journalist hat and, and not telling people what they want to hear, but what is actually the case, I actually think climate change will be, will divide the planet further because the, the policies will hit different countries the hardest and the impacts of a warming planet will hit uh, different parts of the world differently. And so that's that's why this is such a tough issue, because with a lot of things, for example, like smoking and the, and the big fight over tobacco companies, you know, smoking is a bad habit that some people engage in. That's not good for your health. It's not the foundation of the global economy and has repercussions around the entire world. And so, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why I love covering this issue, because it is so complicated and so nuanced. Uh, I, I was talking recently with an economist at the University of Chicago former Obama administration official Michael Greenstone, he and I got into this interesting conversation about morality versus economics. So kind of going off the question that you asked Patrick. And, you know, in the, in the light of this talk about, you know, Greta Thunberg, you know, sailing across the Atlantic and all those things, you know, this idea of morality is really sticky because as soon as you start talking about morality, you need to accept the fact that my morals are not your morals. And then, and then where does that leave you? And so then he, as, as any good economists would say, you need to make it about the money. And that's why he keeps banging the drum of a carbon tax. And, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a minute if you want. But nonetheless, I tend to think that even though climate change brings up a lot of moralistic and altruistic thoughts, that ultimately it's going to have to be about money. If you're just joining us, we're talking about climate change and energy coverage with Amy Harder from Axios, Aaron Kramer, CEO of BSR, and Patrick Temple-West from the Financial Times. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate stories in the five major national papers have increased in recent years. The New York Times has surged from about 100 articles a month during the Obama years to 300 or as many as 500 articles a month recently. Citations in the Washington Post and Los Angeles Times registered similar increases and published around 50 to 100 articles 
articles a month. The Wall Street Journal and USA Today publish far fewer articles and have not increased coverage nearly as much in the last decade. So we basically have three tiers here in the five major national newspapers. The Times pulling ahead, the Los Angeles Times and Washington Post in kind of a middle band, Wall Street Journal and USA Today down there at the bottom. Amy Harder, what do you make of that? You used to work at the Journal. Yeah, I can definitely say that the journal is doing a lot more coverage on climate change since I left. That's a correlation, not a causation. Um, I, I can't overstate how much change has happened in the world since I left the journal. And so for me, it's a little bit hard to know, well, is it because I left the journal or is it because Trump became president? Probably more uh, that Trump became president. Um, I, When I was there at the journal, there was never any censoring of my coverage of climate change. And that's something I've, I've said publicly and will continue to. However, there was also not a lot of encouragement to cover climate change there. Uh, however, uh, earlier this year, and I think also last year, the Journal did a great series on the financial uh, aspect of climate change. Um, but they don't cover climate change. You know, they don't have a climate change team like the New York Times did, does, and, and continues to grow. So I think that uh, is indicative of this idea that the financial institutions are just slower to embrace climate change compared to sort of the 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 politics and the the activism side of things and so I anticipate that the journal and you know of course the FT has been great at covering more climate change than the journal I would say I think as institutions I mean just in the last couple of weeks we saw the, the Federal Reserve held uh, a conference on climate change, which I think is pretty striking given um, President Trump remains in office. I think as you see the concern among financial institutions pick up, you will see it grow in uh, publications like the journal. Now, if you read the comment section of these journal articles, which I sometimes do for entertainment purposes, there's still a ton of deniers in there who uh, are wondering why the heck are you covering this issue? Um, but I think it's great that the journal is doing it. And one niched area that I've sort of carved out for myself, because I don't think there's a lot of coverage in there, aside from the great coverage of the FT, of course, um, is this uh, area between what the oil and gas companies are doing uh, in the climate change space because there's a ton of climate change coverage like what the New York Times is doing. And there's a ton of coverage of oil and gas, but there's not uh, the overlap of that. And I tend to think that's a really critical area. And it's one reason why I cover it and, and, and hopefully more will as well. Patrick Temple West, are there ever uh, pushback at the Financial Times about why we're doing this or it's not happening among the sort of global corporations that you're, that the are your audience? Really? Um, a lot of people see this as marketing. ESG and sustainability, you're just putting this green bond out there for debt that you would have issued anyway. And yeah, people say this is uh, uh, something that um, it's just Wall Street follows the money. And this is just where the money's going. We do have a mandate to cover greenwashing. If there's examples of it, we will call it out. And um, we've done uh, some stories on that front. But um, yeah, it is, it's institutional and it's, it's political. In Washington, I remember covering some climate change hearing from earlier this year, and you'll see from the Republicans, they'll hold up these articles uh, from the 1980s saying global cooling, we're going to be hitting a deep freeze in the next decade or so. So they will say, well, the science is uncertain. Why are we, why do we care about this? Amy Harder, you wrote recently about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, long opposed to any change on fossil fuels. They have changed some of their language and now say inaction is not an option. Is that change language or is that change policy and behavior at the U.S. Chamber? Huge player. 
Right. So the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, to me, really represents the lowest common denominator in corporate America uh, because they have to satisfy so many diverse members. Uh, I would say for now, it's, it's more talk, a lot more talk and a lot less actual action. Um, but nonetheless, in Washington, words matter um, more than perhaps some other places. Uh, and the, the chamber has done a striking uh, shift. You know, even going back to 2009, they had an official there who wanted to hold a public trial on climate change science, really challenging the, the mainstream scientific consensus. Uh, of course, fast forward to 2017, they helped fund a study uh, that bashed Obama's commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement, a study that was eventually uh, uh, called out by President Trump when he pulled out of the deal. Fast forward to two more years, and we are here present day. The chamber not only supports the climate deal, um, but is also holding climate workshops, which are close to the press, uh, which hopefully means something more is being done than just talking. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's a slow evolution uh, in there. And that is something that I, I always point out. Do I call it greenwashing? I probably don't. But nonetheless, I point out that it, for now, doesn't mean that they're changing support uh, for certain policies. For now, the main policies that the chamber supports and most Republicans in Congress is this idea that they support R&D um, for new technologies. And that's a really safe space politically to be in. Uh, the chamber does support an increase in the gasoline tax to fund infrastructure. So I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that someday the chamber could support a carbon tax. The fact that they are now supporting the Paris Climate Agreement was something that they tried to sort of brush under the rug over the last six months. And, and I'm glad that uh, they're, they're owning up to it on their website. And we'll see, you know, over the next several months, there's companies who tell me that if the chamber doesn't step up to the plate more, that they might leave the chamber. And uh, we're seeing that in some other trade associations. And we'll see if there reaches a critical mass where this opposition to big climate policy falls down, and then there'll be sort of a pathway for something big to happen. PG&E, Pacific Acid Electric, 10 years ago left uh, the U.S. Chamber over, over climate change. Uh, long forgotten. Uh, but uh, Aaron Kramer, it's interesting that the U.S. Chamber is inching toward climate action at a time when we have an administration that is, tr is moving in the other direction. Uh, how much is, is the Trump administration you know, shaping the, the, the business behavior? We're in this big era of deregulation. The last part of your question, I think, is the really interesting part. I think that um, people have conflated climate action, which many people support. Polls suggest the number of people, as well as business leaders, investors, others, support more and more by the day with a lot of regulation, which a lot of companies don't like as just as a, a matter of, of course. And those two things have... a well, I, I won't put it in a passive voice, I'll put it in an active voice. There are a lot of interests in Washington that have actively worked to conflate those two things so that um, you bring along people who may be neutral on climate change to oppose climate action because it's seen as a proxy for an overactive regulatory state. And I think that's part of the reason why we've seen so much uh, gridlock in Washington. Um, the other thing about the U.S. Chamber is, uh, you know, the big companies are basically more progressive than a lot of small companies in America around climate change because smaller companies are very worried about more regulation, which raises their costs. And the U.S. Chamber has a lot of small and medium enterprises inside it. So that dynamic um, is there. You know, with respect to the Trump administration, to, to try to figure out why it takes the position that it does, 
I, I honestly am at a loss. I, I think, you know, the business community is clear about what it wants. States and cities are clear about what they want. Investors are clear about what they want. 197 countries around the world are clear about what they want. The Trump administration has so isolated itself on this and other issues as well that um, it, it's hard to come up with a rational argument for that position. Clearly, there are some business leaders who are very pleased not least the coal industry, but let's remember the coal industry employs fewer people than Arby's does in America. So it's not clear to me why defending jobs in the coal industry should become such an important point. You're listening to a conversation about climate in the media. This is Climate One. Coming up, more from the front lines of reporting on the business of climate. Frankly, Trump is creating this big space on the right so that corporations are somehow becoming the most um, reasonable people in the room. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the new business of climate journalism, recorded recently at the BSR conference in San Jose, with Amy Harder, who covers energy and climate for Axios, Patrick Temple-West, a global energy reporter for the Financial Times, and Aaron Kramer, CEO of BSR. Amy describes the prospects for some kind of climate deal coming together in Congress. I would say I'm looking at two potential paths. Uh, one is, well, I suppose three potential paths. One being nothing happens in status quo. Another is the one you're talking about, which is, uh, you know, either Trump wins re-election or Democrat uh, wins. And there's this uh, opening for a sort of a, a moderate bipartisan approach, which would be some sort of carbon tax. The backers like to call it a fee dividend where the money is returned to consumers. I think uh, that has a lot of support from big oil companies and a lot of other corporations. You know, if you talk to them, those backers, a carbon fee, carbon price is inevitable. But when I talk to Republican staffers on the Hill, they say it's impossible. <laughs> and so trying to find the middle ground in there is always a fun, fun challenge as a reporter. I do think the carbon dividend approach uh, could end up backfiring because it is so prescriptive. They're not letting the lawmakers on the Hill craft it how they want to craft it. And I did a column earlier this year about how the biggest fight over what to do with the carbon tax is what to do with the money. And so I think there's a whole nother sort of uh, tangential or coalition of, of corporations and they're just telling Congress, we want a carbon price. However you want to put it together, we're fine. So, but in general, there's this middle ground where you have bipartisan support. Somehow Republicans, enough Republicans come around to the idea. And to be clear, right now we have one member of Congress who's not retiring who supports a carbon tax, one Republican member of Congress. So there's a long way to go. Uh, but the other path, the third path, which I actually think is slightly more likely than the, the middle path, which is that if a Democrat wins, uh, they will try to push something that's far more aggressive, too aggressive, and will not pass Congress, and will have all these corporations that had been sort of inching to the middle, because frankly, Trump is creating this big space on the right, so that corporations are somehow becoming the most um, reasonable people in the room. 
But that's, you know, the world that we're living in under Trump. And so this third path is one where all the political players run back to their corners and nothing gets done because the, the, the Overton window, so to speak, has moved so far to the left that nothing happens. Uh, so two paths, nothing happens. And one path, something happens. So those are, those are the, the paths I see. That Overton window, yeah, what's socially acceptable. Uh, we're going to go to our lightning round. I'm going to ask, uh, just mention a, a noun or phrase and ask you for your first response. First thing that comes to your mind completely completely unfiltered from your subconscious. Amy Harder, flight shaming. Mostly irrelevant. Patrick Temple West, carbon offsets. Market opportunity. Aaron Kramer, corporate sustainability reports. Improve them now. <laughs> Patrick Temple West, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Energy Finance, uh, competitor. Amy Harder, an energy reporter you delight in scooping. Jen DeLuey at Bloomberg, because she does great work. Um, she's been all over the RFS and a bunch of regulatory things. And Patrick Temple West, the leader you most want to interview. Putin. Amy Harder, the big get you covet most. I think the Vatican is doing a lot of interesting things on climate change, so I would love to interview the Pope. Both aim and high, Putin and the Pope, okay. Um... We could interview them together <laughs> on stage. Last one for Aaron Kramer, a company that you would not accept sponsorship from because their values conflict with BSR. The Misk Foundation, which is run by Mohammed bin Salman, would not be one that I would be interested in. There we go. Let's give a round of applause for them getting through the lightning round. Um, Public attitudes about climate change are more nuanced than acceptance or denial. It's often seen as binary. You accept or you deny. Yale and George Mason universities have been surveying Americans for several years and breaking their attitudes into six categories from alarmed, concerned, cautious, disengaged, doubtful, and dismissive. Nearly 60% of Americans are alarmed or concerned. That's up significantly than just four years ago. Uh, Amy Harder, when you look at this, what does that say to you in terms of dismissive? That, you know, I think that 9% of people who are dismissive, 60% are alarmed or concerned. Does that dismissive or denial voice have an amplified uh, presence in the media? Oh, certainly. And that's not to blame the media, but it's it's a reflection of where the political debate is in Washington, D.C. So... Eight years under the Obama administration, I very rarely uh, called up, for example, Myron Ebel, who is a top official at this conservative think tank called the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, he would probably fit into the dismissive or doubtful category. But he uh, is now was now a, an advisor of the Trump transition team, and I talked to him on a semi-regular basis. And so with an, a president in the White House who doesn't acknowledge climate change and is getting information from people like Myron Ebel, I inevitably have to talk to them sometimes. Now, that isn't to say I quote what they say about climate change. I, I don't. But they're nonetheless players in this, in this world, and that's the reality that we're operating in. So I do think it would be interesting to sort of uh, compare these these circles and sizes to the, the influence they have. Because it's not just Myron Ebel, it's the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which to be clear is separate from the news side. Um, it's, it's Fox News. Uh, and those are really um, making the 9% the of the, the, the two 9%s there far more um, greater in an inf influence than the 29 and 30%. I'm actually a little bit surprised that 
there's 29% of people that are alarmed. I, I think when I listen in on focus groups, for example, I hear a lot of people are concerned, very few that would would be so alarmed that they would uh, take an additional $10 on their electricity bill. There's this one woman I talked to, a voter in Iowa, and she's she's concerned about climate change for her children, and but she would not support a $10 increase on her electricity bill. And I asked, why not? She's like, I'm a single mom of four. I pay what I can. I think the corporation should pay. And so I, I think there's, even though I would be surprised if you ask those 30% of people, would you support X, increase in your electricity bill and gasoline bill, the answer is probably not. And so that's the disconnect that I see. Um, and then you pair that with the outsized influence of the people who dismiss the scientific consensus of climate change, and you have a really, really difficult, um, you know, public engagement platform. And that's exactly what happened in France earlier this year, too, with the Gilets Jaunes protests. Dr. Temple West, there's a lot of stories that are that are done because they're highly relatable. They may not necessarily uh, relate to big carbon reductions. I'm thinking about straws and cups. Perhaps straws is something to get uh, written about perhaps too much. They came to come in really fast. You've written about straws and cups. Tell us about that story. Well, they are important for the consumer brands, Starbucks, McDonald's, that are producing these things, and it is a cost for those companies. They are trying to produce um, more sustainable, eco-friendly products. Uh, I think we were covering those as from those companies' perspectives. And yes, people, it is a relatable way into the climate conversation. Everybody who gets a Starbucks, McDonald's cup, who uh, is using those, and as we've seen with the Trump advertisements on plastic straws, they do have a visceral impact for people. So uh, we, we've been looking at that as part of a business segment for those firms. Aaron Kramer, sometimes there's a tension between villainization and accountability in the press, right? There's some things that, you know, environmentalists often, the business model is to villainize, you know, an individual or an institution. So talk about how companies can be held accountable without villainizing them. Yeah, I mean, what's what's really interesting also is I've, I've been in a variety of contexts, as have my colleagues at BSR, where um, we'll inherit uh, a public dispute between uh, an NGO that is really challenging what a company is doing and a company that's really pushing back. And publicly, it's the dialogue of the deaf. And then you get people in a room and actually you can build um, an understanding and real progress. We, we see that all the time. And so there is something about the public dialogue that pushes people um, to the ends of the spectrum which may have some benefit at times, but more often it, it prevents real progress in a synthesis of the different ideas that, um, that a company and, a, and an NGO uh, may have. So I'm, I, I and I think my colleagues at BSR, we're, we're more interested in, in figuring out how we can synthesize those perspectives. Companies can learn from what NGOs see, because often NGOs see um, the world in a way that a company doesn't and, and should, and equally, um, the company will understand how to make progress and how to make it real and, and also credible in ways that sometimes NGOs don't have the capacity to do. So, um, you know, that's why we're here. And I think the, the accountability is important. Uh, you know, journalism is, is crucially important. We've seen nothing but hugely consequential journalism on a whole range of subjects over the last three years in particular in the United States. 
and the public dialogue sometimes distorts things in ways that are not useful. Well, and social media distorts too, because you don't build a big social media following by having nuanced, uh, middle of the ground understanding. You build social media following by being bombastic and attacking and villainizing, and then that grows, but it creates that rift that then BSR comes in and, and fills, um, which gets to the sort of the revenue models, Amy Harder, for, for media organizations. You know, the, a few years ago, newspapers, well, you know, on the door of death, a lot of them, they think since the election, they've had some growth in subscription. Um, is, what's Axios business model? And are you incentivized to, to write stories that, that drive more ads to do clickbait? To answer your second question first is definitely not. My editors give me complete freedom to write about whatever I want to write about. They obviously trust me that I'll write about smart things, but never once have they brought up traffic numbers of my columns and any other stories I write. In fact, I was the one who went to my editors to, to ask hey, can I, can I get the, the metrics for my columns? Because I actually don't get it otherwise. Uh, and I get it a week after it publishes. So it learns, it teaches me to have patience. Um, and I really don't uh, stress about this um, in, in, my, in my coverage. And, but Axios is um, advertising based now. Uh, in the next year, we do hope to have a high-end subscription model, which we've, we've talked about in the media press. Um, so yeah, so it's really exciting. And, and I just love that my editors let me do that. We have some questions from Twitter. Is there a certain beat or niche of climate coverage that you don't see being covered right now that you would like to read about? Patrick Temple West? Carbon credits. Uh, California is a great example of this. The price for the California carbon credit for transportation has hit record highs for two months in a row. And it's driving, it's making more economically feasible. The price for biofuel renewable energy projects that when the credit price was lower, we're not getting funded. So I think that's a market. Oregon's doing a similar program to that. Colorado, New York are looking at similar models. So I think it's a natural beat for us to be covering. One more from Twitter. Amy Harder, uh, how would you hope the climate narrative and mainstream media will evolve over the next five years? I hope that the, so I like to differentiate between print online or newspaper and TV. Uh, and given most people get their news from TV, I do hope that TV journalism gets a little bit more nuanced, and I know that's just a, last, a, a lost cause, probably. But I, but I do hope that there's a little bit more room for, for nuanced um, coverage in, in in TV journalism. That's not just, you know, I th I think there's still some outlets that put people who don't acknowledge climate change on their TV. So, so I do hope that can be a little bit more deeper um, on the TV side of things. Uh, other question for the, the journalists, how do you balance between advocacy and journalism? Is there a place for giving space and voice to perspectives not based in fact? Amy Harder, you're a straight news person, you're in the fact world, but what about the... Yeah, well, I, I'm not, if you mean not based in fact, if you mean, you know, rejecting the mainstream science on climate change, then the answer is no. For example, I did a, a, a story right when Trump was tweeting about climate change a lot. Uh, my editors wanted me to just tell the world who are these people that are giving Trump this information. It's not that many people. It's, it's, it's mostly uh, older white men in Washington, D.C., which I don't know if that's a correlation, but nonetheless, that's who it is. And I, I reached out to these people for comment, and, but I didn't allow them um, to say something that isn't factually accurate. But nonetheless, I did reach out to them. So if that's what this question means, then, then we don't. Uh, in terms of, you know, 
voices to people concerned about climate change, you know, poor people or people in developed countries. I mean, obviously, yes, um, I think that's something that we should cover more. I personally don't, given my beat is in Washington, D.C., but I do see that more and more. But I do think it's important that journalists are not advocates for climate change. Just like crime reporters are not vigilantes, we should not be climate advocates. And I think that's something that a lot of climate advocates do not understand. So I'm trying to make it clear to anybody who will listen. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about climate change in the media with Amy Harder, energy and climate reporter for Axios, Patrick Temple-West, who covers environmental, social, and governance issues for the Financial Times, and Aaron Kramer, CEO of BSR. I want to give special thanks to the incredible team at BSR for including us at their conference and partnering with us on this episode. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org or wherever you get your pods. Also, I'd like to share some exciting news. Climate One has been nominated for Best Green Podcast at the iHeartRadio Podcast Awards presented in Los Angeles in January. We want to thank you and iHeartRadio. Please keep writing those reviews. They really do help. Quick reminder that as a nonprofit, we rely on the generosity of individuals like you to produce these podcasts every week. We hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation to support Climate One, which will be matched up to $15,000. Go to climateone.org donate, and thank you. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.